Act 1 Kinjigito Shiga Tadayo Mu Imi no Umi The Three Mothers, Creators of Man and Goddesses of All Creation, gather in the room of Angel above Earth. The Regent Kinko'u of Balance, the Lady Mayday of Order, and the Madam Kongram of Chaos. So gathered are us three women of creation. So gathered. So gathered. Mothers of the world and life. Matrons of all being. Masters of humanity. And so our incorruptible gift of life has thus been corrupted after all. Yes, look down at these terrible creatures. Mankind. Loathsome. Our gift has been wasted. The potential of life has proved worthless. In the hands of men, they have squandered our precious miracle with unbearable monotony. There is no beauty to be found in these so-called people. No extremity or fascination. There is nothing worthwhile here at all. Surely there must be something of worth in this despicable race. And yet I look upon them and see nothing but a gray and tragic sea of resignation. They have accepted that they will inevitably exterminate themselves and have ensuingly chained themselves to these revolting, unfortunate systems. These societies they have built for themselves start them of the decadent, the perverse. And simultaneously engender in them a sickness of the spirit so fatal the very organizations they create seem to ensure their own demise. Their reality is little more than a temporal mirage, collectively generated by the desires and wills of the world's foolish inhabitants. They stumble in a black state of blindness through the illusion of existence tritely lusting and craving for the phantasm of something called experience, all the while unaware that these same childish dreams are what come to constitute the materiality that oppresses them so. What these mortals have dreamed up together, it is an unimaginable waste. The notion of humanity is thus a failure. So it seems. And what has to be done? Destruction? It would be too simple. There would be nothing left. The Madame Conran is correct. Humankind must come to an end. It is so. But balance must be considered. This rendition of man may have failed, but the seed of knowledge need not perish too. The world can be reborn anew. Death and rebirth are one and the same. And to create, one must first destroy. Yes. Today will be the final day for this mankind, but in its ashes, there may be hope yet. Then it is decided. I bid thee, Regent, allow us these last few hours to delight once more in the folly of humankind. Of course, let us for the last time witness these tragic beings, hear their miserable hopes and dreams, observe them in their 
final hours on Earth. Listen, now their hearts. I am so alone. I want him to fuck her so bad. Why would he text me back? I can't believe I haven't cleaned my room in a week. What's the point of going on? I don't think anybody loves me. I should have heard that. Every day, I just go to work, go to bed, wake up, and do it again. What a bitch. I just don't want to meet you again. I think I'd rather kill myself. Thank you. Don't touch Why am I so selfish? Yeah, that is the Why do we exist? It's a podcast. I don't understand it I want someone one of these days, I swear to God, I can't just sit in a market and kill every grimy little Chi chi. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll be at um, I'll be at Sancho May in like ten minutes. So I can just meet you by the uh, yeah, by the by the Koban that we always meet at the police box. Okay. Done See you soon.
These words seem to be mere circumscriptions placed around their lives to keep them from slipping totally into despair. They are unreachable fantasies. But you cannot truly believe there is no pleasure or joy in life on earth. Any joys, any pleasures, they are all fleeting shades placed on the bright and piercing lamp of death and misery that describes all human experience. Maybe it is true. But I see them rejoice in drinking and love and friendship. Do you need to say these things are really all so false and meaningless? You must simply ask, where does it end? None of them ever seem to reach Nirvana. They do not escape the karmic wheel through these facsimiles called love, friendship, art, math, ecstasy. These man-made notions are nothing but a pathetic gesture at denying the truth that their lives end in nothingness. Let us examine this one, in the land they call Tokyo. The homosexual? Yes. I see that he goes to visit his friend, to speak with him, to drink. I imagine they will talk of many things and matters and concerns. 
But even if we were not to enact our new task today, what do you believe would happen to this creature? Well, he will one day die. His body will grow weak. His soul will dwindle from its fleshly confines. And when he at last surrenders to the inevitable void all mankind is sentenced to, his body and viscera will return to the earth so that it can be repurposed into a new life once more. Over and over again, the cellular form will be processed and taken into new life, repeating in new shapes he will have no cognition of, doomed to repeat in an endless cycle the meaningless part of which he will not even know something himself. Perhaps this existence we have gifted them with was destined to fail from conception. Perhaps there was no way to ever create something meaningful from time on Earth. Of course not. Earth is a paradise. Earth is the heaven they dream of, but they have sullied it with their sins. They have divided the sensual world of their hearts from the earth and imprisoned it in their foolish minds. The possibility for love, for sublimity, for profound pain and meaning, all beautiful experience remains locked in the illusions of their wretched hearts. So life on earth is evil. No, it's no longer evil. Not at all. What do you mean? It was great evil there once. They waged terrible selfish wars. They massacred and pillaged and led lives driven by the carnal passions of blood. They ripped their own buildings down. They burned through their own history. They murdered one another as soon as their hearts told them it was right to do so. But now... Now they do nothing. Even their great violences are artless, striped, devoid of any moving passion. It is not that life on Earth is evil. It is that it is dull. The Lady May is right. Humanity has lost all hope in making its emotion real. So it appears as if the apocalypse has already taken place. The world is long over. We are only liberated from the illusions there is so trapped in. To free them from this tragic dream. And maybe something will be gained from it. Maybe, from somewhere deep in this long quiet. They are about to meet. Hi, doll. Hey. How are you? Are <laughs> you good. Your... Yeah, it's going. Okay. Um, I actually can tell you about your haircut. Oh, can you? I okay. can. It looks okay. different than the last time I saw it anyway. Well, I'm glad it looks different, at the very least. I saw some Baba, like, throwing up all over oh, the no. street. She <laughs> like, easily, like, 65 or something. Oh, God. It was kind of bleak. I know. I mean, that's the one thing that I always think is so funny about uh, Japan and, and the whole... It's so strict around drugs, but, you know, it's completely normal to go home on, like, a weekday evening and see, like, four people passed, literally passed uh-huh. out where the station masters are having to carry them out of the station with the paramedics. Look, there's one right now. <laughs> it's so crazy. Like, it's just so common. Like, that's my third one tonight if I was going to actually be counting. I saw, like, four in yeah. Shinjuku. And it was, like, pre- like honestly, like a pretty, like, quiet night right. in the station. But when I was uh, walking through, I noticed, like, four people just, like, flat laid out. I know. It's, uh... I wish that it was not as... Um, well, I mean, actually, I'm not, I'm not too bothered by that. It's just the flip side of, like, the punishing marijuana the same, <laughs> like, you know, that you're going to punish 
people with uh, ice. Uh huh. <laughs> Are you gonna have to bleep that out? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, good. <laughs> right, we're just talking about the law here. Exactly. Yeah. Merely speaking of the law is all. Right. No, I um. I love the drinking culture, and I mean, mm-hmm. even like maybe towards the end of my senior year mm-hmm. in college, I noticed that people were not like drinking in the same way that it felt when I was 18 and I right. kind of attribute it to like oh like the the fervor is coming to an end because people are getting older mm-hmm. but I actually realized that just like young people don't want to drink that much anymore it seems yeah no I mean they there's like research studies have shown that like the current what Gen Z are like not engaging in like drugs and alcohol uh-huh. as much as their former peers because they're so obsessed with social media which is the most boring conversation to have but like <laughs> the reality right and i'm like jesus i know i was young or old for the first time i tried alcohol it was after the summer after i graduated high school uh-huh. i was 17 years old i have a picture from the exact moment we took our first shot it is uh, i can actually show it to you now <laughs> i'm see. pretty sure i have it like lined up in my favorites on my photo albums I guess we're just going to go to King again because, okay. but okay, actually I want to take a walk and see if this one cafe is open because I think it's very cute. I like sitting in there, Yes. but I highly doubt it'll be open because of the, you know, COVID right. stuff. Here comes some taxis. I mean, although there's some, uh, a good amount of people. Actually, it is kind of bit, but, um, nice for us. It's a, uh, oh, right. I know him. Oh, that's funny. I know him too. What? I think. Or no, maybe not. I'm so confused. It actually looked both like my old roommate when I first moved to Tokyo uh-huh. and one of the guys who outed me in high school. And they no- <laughs> look nothing alike, but that person looked like both of them. <laughs> Amazing. How strange. He's a tulpa. Okay, actually, this street I have very strong memories of because the first time I ever came to Nichome, we drank in a little bar around here. That's so cute. And that was when I was... Um, Merely 22. 22 years old. Yeah. Jeez. How time, how time flies. When I first came to Nichome when I was, you know, 22, mm-hmm. we only went to, like, Dragon and, oh, like... Yeah, um, yeah, And Artie. We went to Artie as and well. And... um the other one? Uh, we went to where we're about to walk up to, which is the stupid place with the... With, what is it with called? The, the Tori Gate... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every yeah. single oh, time. Oh, 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 yeah, What is yeah. it called? I don't remember. What Every that. single time I try to remember its name, it goes it's like away. Advocate or something like that? Oh, this is what I was thinking. It's totally oh. closed. Alamaz. I like this um, place because um, it's very easy to sit down here. It's true. And it's been closed both the last time we came as well. Yeah. This is the picture, by the way. Oh, <gasps> that is so cute. You were so skinny. I know. I was very, uh, I was very oh, skinny. Oh, that is so charming. I know. Literally the second after we took our first shot, the camera took this picture and then this girl threw up immediately oh it like, looks like she's about to die yeah, in the picture yeah it's it's a very <laughs> funny picture we can um, walk by the by said cafe right, just right yeah but it's a foreigner cafe so uh-huh. we, we have to keep our english voices low yeah i don't want to be heard mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's a very classic uh Game accent uh, very, yeah, very, the accent. Uh-huh. The Japanese accent, yep. Yeah. Actually, it kind of looks like it's closed here, I too. I think it is closed. But I mean, kind of a blessing. You know, the last time that we came, 
There's definitely more people compared to Oh, wait, to no, this isn't it. I guess it's one more block no, down. No, it's one that one Okay. There's definitely more people than the last time we came, like, a month ago. Oh, I mean, it was deserted when we came last time. Yeah, when I came to, uh... But I've been feeling like when I go out to, like, Shibuya and stuff... Uh-huh. Um, that there's definitely more people in, like, Shibuya. Yeah. So, in general, I think people are starting to go out more. I can't oh, take I any... I don't know why we're I don't know why either. That was weird. Yeah. <laughs> I visibly noticed that there was not a, a light there. That's funny. And then continued anyway. I wonder how long it'll take us of, uh, you know, frolicking around before we really recognize somebody. Oh, oh here we are, yeah, and it's no, so closed. It is definitely closed. Advocate, right? Air, oh. Uh, arrow, arrow. Or is it pronounced Iroh? Iroh. I mean, this is a classic oh, fixture, isn't it? Oh, Iroh. Um... This, at this intersection, was where that guy is standing right now. Uh -huh. When I had come here, when I was just 21 years old, there was a guy standing at that corner, and he winked at me. And <laughs> I was like, um, maybe I'll, yeah, go talk to him. I thought he was really, you know, really cute. And uh, I went over and talked to him, and he ended up being, like, 38 years old. I thought he was, like, no older than 28. And at and the then time, I had, like, <laughs> like, you know, up to 28 on my grinder profile. Uh -huh. So I was like, uh, I can't believe I'm, like, talking with somebody who's over the age of 30. And then three months later, I was in a relationship with somebody who was 42. So <laughs> That's so funny that we both, our first boyfriend in Japan was this, I think they were both literally 42. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Like, when we were, when we started dating them, they uh -huh. were 42 years old. Yeah. Oh man, I mean, I'm thinking about when season, when season two started the show. Mm -hmm. I was like very convinced I was gonna be, you know, around this time settling down and like moving to Nagoya. <laughs> and right. now here we yeah. are. I mean, when we first met, you, this like, way, I guess. you were, you were talking about like how you felt like Kazu was, like oh, the, you. <laughs> um, you know, like the one. Uh huh. And how you really, I mean, to me. It sounded like you were really uh, excited or looking forward to settling down with cousin. Yeah, sometimes I wonder how good I am about, like, overstating or, like, creating a narrative around myself. Because, <laughs> you know, when I reflect on it now, I'm like, right. wow, I was, like, a little miserable. And I was, like, thinking about how irritable I was with him all oh, the time. No. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm kind of a monster. Oh, God. Well... Well, <laughs> you live and learn. That's the place that you used to go to a lot, right? Word, yeah, Word Up Bar. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Word Up. Word Up. They have like gay little um, like balloons, like cut out speech, comics book speech balloons. Right. That have, I'm at Word Up, that you can take a picture and then tag Word Up. At, on Instagram. Very sweet. That's something I always think about the gay culture here is uh -huh. there is a real layer of sweetness. Yes. Like there's um despite the absolute terror that is mm. like conducted behind closed doors, there's kind of like a, a familial and um kind of like a brotherly affection. Oh, definitely. And it's all p like painted with a very like cute, like yes. sweet kind of Palette, yes. you know? Very, it's very uh, welcoming. Okay, now we're going to walk past that person again. And oh, we're going to gonna have to go in here too. Okay. It is neither of the people that I originally thought it was. So. But is it somebody else? No. It's okay. also not that person. But I like how we're getting looks already. I mean, this, yeah. with the wig on this, yeah. 
it's ridiculous. That's because true. before it was fine, and now it has like a full diva wig. It look no, it looks more like a uh, what is it? A Furby oh, or a troll doll? It looks like an aged troll yeah, yeah. doll. That is very funny. I'm thinking if I should switch the gain on the mic before we go in, but mm. um, let's just give oh. it a whirl. Oh, hey. I knew this would happen. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. I just got back from Brazil. Really? Yeah. What? On your vacation. Uh, vacation? Okay, not your, like, job? Not your job? I wish it was. You wish it was your job? It was your vacation? Oh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Nice no, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> uh, this is Dudu. Oh, nice Dude, to this is Zach. Zach. Yeah. We're recording a podcast. Oh. I'm gonna get drinks. Okay. <laughs> well, shall we get a drink then? Yeah, yeah, Probably now is better than later. Okay, let's get our beer. Oh, I actually want to get my money out now because it's going to be a big production when I go in for it, yeah. Alright. See ya. You just grabbed my ass for the people that are not able to see. I didn't even see. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah, I'm just going to take out like 2,000 yen tonight. Although I would like to drink a little bit more, so maybe I'll take out 3,000 yen. I'm doing a very uh, rare, like I'm drinking tonight. This is probably the first time in over a year that I'm getting like legit, or I'm looking to get legit lit. Mm-hmm. Is that a word that's still used? Not in my world, but let's okay. go for it anyway. I'll get <laughs> let's lit get too. Lit. Oh my god. That was a podcast I went on once. Getting get lit. lit. <laughs> getting lit. Oh, getting lit. It's about literature. Go. Okay, let's let's okay. get our drink. Oh, that's, that's right. to make me look more masculine. Are you wearing a belt? No, no, no. My, my workout oh, belt. Oh, your workout belt is just <laughs> your backpack. How charming. I know. It was because I uh, was late. So was I. Yeah. What a night. Well, but... Kampai. Kampai. 
Is that the Tokyo Craft? Yes. I had that last time. It was wretched. Uh, but I don't mind it. Last time, they didn't give me any foam, mm. so it was no good. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, this is fine. This is not so great. What is that? Ho Garden. Mm. Yes. I'm not familiar. I think it's uh, pretty common in Tokyo. Uh-huh. Yeah, but... Uh, maybe I'm thinking of something else. But I, the thing is, is that I don't drink, like, nearly enough that right. when I... Like do drink, everything like tastes pretty sim- same same to me. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I have been drinking nothing but lemon sours for like three weeks straight. So, mm-hmm. well, <sighs> hi Nick, how are you? Good. How are you, Zach? Good. So we're recording um, last episode of season two tonight. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. Um, I was kind of thinking about. Ending the season of the show, mm-hmm. and it made sense to me to talk about Mishima and specifically this book. Yes, because I read this for the first time two years ago, Forbidden Colors Kinjiki by Mishima Yukio. Mm-hmm. And when I did, I think it kind of like changed my worldview forever, and I have been trapped in its philosophy ever since. Um, yeah, I definitely feel as though because I, I ran through your podcast uh-huh. and like when I found out when you started your podcast and when you had written uh, read Forbidden Colors it made complete sense because when I read Forbidden Colors pretty much after I had gotten through the most of your podcast I felt like I was reading like the I don't even know the manifesto of your podcast I feel exactly the same way yeah and um we're recording live in Shinjuku Nichome tonight. And I think the reason why is because um, lately I've been trying to... Oh, there goes my cigarette onto the ground. I'm trying to uh, <laughs> like blur the lines of fiction and reality between mm-hmm. what goes on in my show and what happens in um, reality. And so we're out here in the gay district of Tokyo. Yes. We're talking about Mishima and my podcast tonight, and yes. I'm, I'm really glad I, it gets to be you that lives here and we get to do this together. Oh, I'm, I'm so happy and honored to be on the season finale of season two. It's I'm so really popular. funny doing like doing the, the podcast bit like in person. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> like, right. And thinking about like the way I do it on like Zoom all the time. Right, right. I'm just like actually looking at you right here. I know, I know. It's a bit like, uh, I don't, is it intimidating? No, no, I mean, a little. I don't, I don't know the way to describe the feeling, but it makes sense that we're doing it you know, in person yes. like this. Yes. And um, with you particularly, because when we did our BAP episode back mm. in May, yes, May, I think that was kind of the moment that ended up in kicking off my path to get here. Because I was still teaching at the time. My life was completely different. I was living with, or not living with, I was still with my old boyfriend, um, set on one path. And then, I don't know, around that time, I started thinking about you and your experience in Japan. And I saw that there was a way out of what I was doing. And I still don't know exactly where I'm going. But, you know, I think starting with that conversation, I, I started to... I started to take a new path that has led me to where I'm standing right now. Well, I'm very happy that I was able to be your springboard of sorts into Tokyo life. I think, uh, yeah, it's very funny because you are essentially following in my footsteps, like doing exactly the same thing that I did. Like, uh-huh. um, And so, I don't know, maybe in... Uh, 
actually you're already in a pretty like swaggy spot right now i feel but, i know my yeah. little spot in higashi nakano has been nothing but wonderful to me right exactly i mean i started i pressed record on the on the mic when i was like getting on the train mm-hmm. and it was like 12 minutes to get here or so yes, exactly yeah. i know it's like i still remember when i had first moved here it was incredible that i could be in a place like like nichome mm-hmm. even though i never go now back then when i didn't have any friends i had just moved to tokyo it was like the first time I had ever been in a city that actually had a vibrant gay town. Yes. You know, and so I would go, you know, because I only lived but a 20-minute walk from here when I first moved here. Yeah. Like, um, you know, three, four times a week. I was essentially, like, living <laughs> there for the first six months that I was in Tokyo. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's a, an adventure in itself, for sure. And I have many memories from that time. I'm sure you're, like, feeling very similarly now. Oh, yeah. Because um, up until I moved to Tokyo, I've never lived in a city in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I'm from a town of less than 2,000 people. Right. I was, like, 900 when I moved there in the 90s with my family. And, um, like, then I was in Eugene, then Sioux, and now here. And throughout my whole life, a common thread has been, like, me trying to organize my own being along with homosexuality mm-hmm. and then to be in Nichome right. like here tonight it's like this kind of feels like the first like real place I've been where it's like actually like manifested physically do you know really? what I mean? oh no I totally understand what you mean I mean it's like you know I think for myself it was always really intimidating but despite coming here like three to four times um, a week because of that very fact it was like everything was kind of leading up to this, I don't know, life that I knew Tokyo could offer that no other, like, place that I had lived in up until that point had offered. And so everything suddenly becomes very real, Mm. like almost hyper-real, you know? Hyper-real is exactly how I feel about it. It's like, that's how I felt when I was at Ageha, which Mm. I talked about, of course, but, like, I mean, to see that inner universe, like, ripped out and, like, made public and just like the sheer amount of like buildings like all for the same purpose here which yes. is to uh, put homosexuals in a room together and see what happens the right. greatest social experiment of the 21st and 20th century I know I know I mean it's perfect for what we're talking about I know and it's like you know the ghost of Mishima lives among the streets of Nichome he does right? he's here he's here he's here I can feel his presence so when we talked about BAP a little bit uh-huh. to bring up a, another ghost as it were yes like I recall being really frustrated with the way that like right wing bodybuilders like mm-hmm. view Mishima right and one of the core problems and one of the things that has made me most furious about the utter molestation of him in the public discourse is how people don't reconcile with his homosexuality correctly at all. They either believe him to be 100% like gay in the contemporary sense, or they believe him to be not gay or homosexual in any sense of the word, and it was like something he overcame as like a, a way of defeating his uh, Dionysian self. But the fact of the matter is, is, the, is that Mishima was a a homosexual in the classic sense when he was writing this book, and he was the first person to, I think, see sexuality in the way he did so clearly and precisely with the book we're talking about that, like, it astounds me that people try to assert him as anything but, like, a homosexual writer in that way. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, no, he was a, com- a complete faggot. So, um, 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that he was very much a product of his time. Yeah. Um, from the homosexuality sense, you know, like it was, like you're saying, him putting homosexuality to like pen and paper in a way that no other author had before him. Mm -hmm. I would argue that like no other author really did after, um, after, yeah. you know, I, like, and so I think that to try and paint him in like the current LGBT Q, etc. You know, uh, like he's the gay author of the 20th century Japan. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't make sense. And similarly, the idea that, oh, because he was married and his, you know, uh, widow vehemently denies that he was, you know, a raging homosexual. Uh huh. That, oh, well, he must have overcome it. I mean, he was married until the end of his uh, short life. Right. But, and he had children. And he had children. But, you know, I don't think that that was um, the case that he overcame that. I think that he, it was something that was always with him. Um, and I don't think that he wanted to overcome it. No, I know? don't think so either. And this book was, you know, published originally in 1951. Yes. 51 years ago. Yes. Crazy. Sorry, uh, that's not right. <laughs> that's not <laughs> 71, right. That's 71 years ago. <laughs> 71 yeah. years ago. Right. And Kintiki, Forbidden Colors, is a novel about beauty and gay men and gay Morris and... Um, it paints a portrait of the most beautiful young man in the world, Yuichi. Yes. And this boy is so beautiful, this 22-year-old man is so beautiful that be he becomes a total agent of destruction. And uh, the book is published, was originally like, published in a serialized format. Yes. So um, it would, they would release monthly with uh, new chapters. And because of kind of like the soap opera, like weekly, like drama of it, um, Mishima like goes into like further like plot twists and drama and like kind of absurdist camp than he like almost goes anywhere else. And like the result is a novel like so piercingly like true about homosexuality that um, the first time I read it, I frequently found myself just crying reading the page or like stopping like full right having to like close it feeling like this plummeting sensation of horror in me because what it reveals about homosexuality is like dangerous almost mm, it's like mm, too true mm. yeah i mean okay the thing about uh forbidden colors that i don't necessarily think people in the states or in, in europe maybe in europe would would understand is that it is extremely true to the situation as it is today yes. in, in Japan. So, like, a lot of times you'll watch media from the West, and it's like you're watching bygone times, and it's like, oh, wasn't it so hard for people, you know, in the 1940s, even in, like, the 1970s, mm. to have to live in this, you know, world where you're um, closeted, you're, at, you're, you're looked at as actual, like, vermin, whatever, you're not accepted by society. Like, you read Forbidden Colors as somebody that's living in Tokyo, and he's describing, like, the parks where people go to meet up, you know, the the hidden codes, etc., that exist very much today. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole plot line of, oh, guy that's only interested in men is getting married because that's a societal expectation of him. Yes, that happened in America 50 years ago. I have somebody my same age, 29 years old, who's, like, looking for a partner currently uh -huh. who loves to have, like, high sex on the weekend with yeah. guys. So, like, it's very much um, not something that has, like, shifted at all, really. Right. You know? 
No, it's it's so true, and like um, that kind of like understanding of homosexuality is like, uh, or maybe heterosexuality is a better way to put it as like a mask, right? Yes. Like the reoccurring image of a mask goes back to Kamen Kokohaku, like Confessions of a Mask, um, and he's always had an understanding of um, like the outer self as a, sort of like a traditional Japanese theater no mask that is right. like worn where uh, something infinitely more disturbing is twirling beneath it. Right. And um, in, in this book in particular, like the, the mask of heterosexuality and the mask of homosexuality and like this constant shuffling of different identities is so present. Like you feel Yuichi as well as the other like gay characters in the book like constantly just... Um, Flittering between so many different iterations of the self that it feels, um, I don't know, I, I don't, I just, I feel like I am very like acquainted with that mm. sensation of like mm. noticing people like so rapidly shuffling between different personas, and I haven't seen like anyone ever, you know, kind of manifest it in the same way that Mishima does here. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Mishima and Forbidden Colors that I think, uh, and I, maybe you might disagree with me on uh-huh. this, but. Um, I see it as something that's viewed very much from somebody who has little experience but has, like, you know, wanting to broach into the world of homosexuality. And um, I think a lot of the relationships are focused mainly on older men and very young boys. Yes. And what's kind of missing is that um, place in the middle, like in your 30s, per se. Um, And I'm, I'm curious to see how Mishima like himself when he was coming to these bars did he meet like guys that are in their 30s that are in similar in age in relationships I know he loves like the theme of you know old and young and how that contrasts against each other but I did feel like the book was largely um, focused around things that we've experienced yeah you know being 22 years old moving to Tokyo and like (laughs) getting into a relationship with people 20 years our senior right Right. because um before Yuichi kind of initiates himself completely in like the you know homosexual sodality, he initially starts at like you know the park, and right. he meets someone his his age at first. But then as he like sinks deeper into the overall like melt of gay people here, mm. and I mean like the the scope of it and the detail of how like this society is like functioning underneath the skin is like so fleshed out and real mm-hmm. but it ultimately does like once it digs into him as like a member of like not just like the homosexual identity but the culture as well we end up like seeing these like endless systems of him and um, old men together and he kind of like characterizes it as like uh, this tragic like fate and um, he writes in this book that like the lover and the love the beloved are always in a, a torturous relationship um, and the power of youth and beauty together uh, makes it so that the older lover is always permanently tormented by their affection with their uh, partner and I feel like that was very true for what I went through with my ex-boyfriend. Yes, I mean like the fact of the matter is Yuichi is somebody who I think is protected by his beauty he understands that um, whatever issue he gets into he can very well escape it using his beauty and Um, when I broke up with my, you know, boyfriend who was 20 years my senior, I specifically remember us sitting in this restaurant in Shibuya, and I had told him, like, I would like to break up, and he, like, started crying at this, you know, restaurant where there was people at other tables, and Uh I remember, like, you know, 
passing him a tissue and just being pretty stone cold and like you know it's embarrassing to say but like just very unfeeling mm. and like that was one of the things that um, I felt when I was reading Forbidden Colors with Yuichi is that it's just this really cold unfeeling like no real um, tie to anything but because you're beautiful you don't have to have that tie because uh -huh. there's always going to be people that would like to at least try to make some sort of bond with you right yeah so. no it's exactly like that and um that is the kind of the main tension of the book that animates the whole thrust of the unwieldy, ridiculous plot as it goes on is that um, a older novelist named Shusuke, I think. Shusuke. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he is um, this aged, tragic, like has a terrible knee that they like Mishima endlessly describes like his like fibromyalgia basically, okay. and. Um, he basically encounters Yuichi on a beach and sees his like naked form like unveiling itself from the ocean and it spends like three pages going through each like detail of his like body and like the minute function of like how his elbow adjusts and all of a sudden this horrific well of beauty is like unearthed and begins like spewing out like a geyser and um, he basically decides to take this boy, Yuichi, and uh, take advantage of his homosexuality and use him as a weapon of mass destruction against the world of women. Yes, and I think it's funny because people will say that this book is like extremely misogynistic because it is seriously nuclear warfare against women. Yes. The way that women are described in this book through um, Shunsuke and Yuichi, these two main characters, uh -huh. is very, very vile. But I think it's not so much a, a philosophy of Mishima himself, just uh -huh. something about these two characters in particular that just completely despise women. And I think it's actually completely understandable when you think about the time that this book is set mm. in, in 1940s, you know, 50s Japan, right. where, like, essentially, as it mentions in the book, there was a time where homosexuality was completely, like, okay in Japan. Yeah. You know, and how they're having this conversation with the owner of this, like, motor vehicle company. And since he's the CEO, he says that, you know, he could never let his secret be revealed lest he would be completely publicly shamed, disowned, etc. And he says, like, um, something like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, this would have uh -huh. been okay. And it's so crazy to think that, like, you know, there's people in 1940s Japan that are saying that, oh, you know, so long ago it would have been, it would have been accepted for me for this lifestyle. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, of course, they want to feel like this, like violent terrorism against women, because exactly. like the 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 pain that happens in their hearts and the absolute high stakes of their situation in society is so, you know, perilously tall that of course, like they take those emotions and turn it into this raging misogyny. And I, the other way I think about it, when I first when I read it the first time two years ago, before I reread it was like also like exactly the same as like the misogyny is like kind of a like trapped in the characters and not like a product of Mishima um, and like this read I feel the same way but I also feel like the philosophy about women is like so true I was like the, there's a lot of incredibly heinous description of women in this book and like their vaginas in particular one character is like they're like meat pockets like they're yes. they're like sweat meat pockets and um they're always uh, just you know constantly evading them and everything, and um, that kind of like sense of rage against a woman like leads to some 
uh, you know, really beautiful iterations of how they uh, imagine homosexuality. Um, he writes in, in one portion, that dream was that the truth that man loves man would overthrow the old truth that man loves women. <gasps> Seriously, no. Like, uh, it's such a beautifully written book from the perspective of, like, how you arrive at um, the hatred of women through homosexuality. Like, yes. the motivator... It's so well written from the perspective of um, the main characters that, yeah, I don't understand how people say that it's this misogynistic book. It's just these two characters that have an extreme valid hatred for women. Well, yeah, because uh, this misogyny is, you know, real. It's, it exists in the world and people are, you know, engineered towards it. And, you know, what it ends up is like this perilous struggle that all of these gay men are going on to overthrow the institution of women and like create ecstasy between you know just men and you know when we're thinking about like Edo period Japan or you know mm -hmm. deeper than that when um, you know boy love and like the right. Foucault like ancient a Greek like Grecian boy love was you know kind of a common thing like there was no need to overthrow the woman right yes and yet we've like entered a society where like woman you know doesn't necessarily reign but is you know certainly um, creating aspects of society and so the kind of um, pure sensual um, relation between like man and boy that has you know been so iterated and you know Socrates and Plato all the way up to you know uh, lots of Japanese literature like it becomes uh, something much darker and more frightening which is this uh, sort of like communist terrorism attempt to uh, overthrow all societal systems in order to create ecstasy between two people. And he even calls it communism sometimes when he's like talking about like the, the world of male love. Yes, well, I mean, the thing about it is is that it's also very resigned. So I think there's another passage where um, Yuichi is with one of his uh, lovers and a woman outside of the street sees the two of them and scoffs like, ugh, homosexuals. Oh, yeah. And he gets so angry, he's like, ugh, them referring to heterosexuals and he um, essentially like <clears throat> then Mishima you know posits that unfortunately the like uh, you know claims of, of the majority will always trump the claims of the minority mm -hmm. so if the majority claims to be disgusted then the homosexual is in you know the only place he can be which is to be disgusted right you know? and isn't that that's something that remains so Prescient, 71 years later, because as we're entering this, you know, period of time where men are trying to, like, uh, reposition homosexuality as something that isn't, like, you know, disgusting or, you know, horrific or, or frightening, you know, we're, we're trying to create, like, this, like, loving image of gay people that's uh, in tune with the universe, when in fact we are a jagged shard of glass, like, pricking into it. And Mishima, like, kind of understanding that and presenting it 70 years ago moves me to my heart and makes me feel less insane that I've, you know, harbored this kind of philosophy this whole time and, you know, it's been around for 70 years. I mean, well, that's the very thing that I think, and I think we're probably close enough in generation to um, have both gone through the extremely, like, whitewashed homosexuality of the gay marriage movement. Right. And I think, like, because it was in our formative, like, teenage years, well, that was the main stereotype of gay men. Like, 
when I came to Tokyo and I essentially immersed myself, the first like four or five years, I had literally one of the biggest struggles of my life trying to merge like what I felt the gay world actually was and the idea that I was sold from the you know HRC human、uh -huh. rights campaign gay marriage activists yeah you know because those are not compatible no right at all no and I mean this is the you know the greatest、uh, battle of the contemporary homosexual is it, I just said that really homosexual wrong, homosexual, homosexual. <laughs> I'm getting so carried away but it's like this really is like the contemporary struggle for you know gay men is they have to be able to. Pierce the veil that's been put in front of them by you know liberal systems or whatever you want to call it, whatever it is, you know the illusion that there is、um, some pristine future waiting for you. When in fact, like you know, there is a pristine future, but it's also you know full of abjection and horror and disgust, and you have to be able to synthesize both of those things, and you can't do it if you are denying one half of the coin. Exactly. Um, I mean, maybe if you're going to like go onto the gay filter on Christian singles or Christian mingles. Good for you, honey. You know, there maybe <laughs> you'll find some sort of, you know, sweet life with the white picket fence. But、uh -huh. if you're trying to, you know, be an agent in the gay world, that's、mm -hmm. not at all possible. I no,、think. I completely agree.、Um, and I mean, you know, I'm getting carried away and like mispronouncing my words, and <laughs> it's like I, I think Mishima like understands like that.、Uh, This is the spirit of boots, leg, wig, and twirl. You know, like when you get so thrown into some gay feeling that you like, you know, spin out of control. And、um, Mishima, you know, pre-locates boots, leg, wig, and twirl over and over again. And something in this novel that moves me to no end is the way he describes the movement of human feeling, because it's not, you know, just like a small change or something. He describes it in this mountainous landscape of huge earth. Obliterating, you know, moments of、uh, reflections on the self that are so powerful that it like completely obliterates your whole being. He writes like, as mountain climbers are shocked by their own gigantic shadows, so he was shocked by this gigantic emotion granted him by his soul. This is、um, in regards to、um, you know this character Shinsuke like looking at a <laughs> looking at Yuichi and being like he's so pretty. <laughs> like that's the way he registers it. It's like. A feeling so grandiose that it's like beyond you and makes you insane. Yeah, well, I think it's like you know, one of the other passages that's、uh, directed towards women that I really like is that Shunsuke had to use all his willpower to, like, you know, put up with some sort of annoyance from a woman, right? And that willpower was manifesting itself to his wanting to like. Punch the vagina or something like、yes. that, which is written completely straight, straight faced. But I, it, it just comes off so comedic, and it's <laughs> hatred for women again. Well, yeah, Kaczynski is pathetic, yes, you know, and absolutely, he's made out to be pathetic because of not only his,、um, you know, kind of simpering like a.、Uh, Broken relationships with women, but also because、um, he is afraid of manifesting beauty in any way, and his entire literary output are like these,、um, you know, shallow and, and not truly engaged,、uh, like kind of teasings of the sensual. Like he writes these books where he、uh, carves women in marble, as like Mishima describes, and they're all like pristine, statuesque people.、Uh, but then he keeps like a diary in French where he's like, "I fucking hate women. I'm gonna <laughs> fucking kill every single one of them," and. He's presented like in a pathetic, like kind of tragic way, but he like you know ultimately like wins because、uh, he's able to utilize beauty outside of himself as a 
weapon of mass destruction. Exactly. He is the artist. Yuichi is his greatest art project. Right. Everything, as I think Mishima writes, um, all of the dirty, messy process behind Yuichi is done through Shunsuke. And so Yuichi just becomes this perfect beacon of beauty um, that's presented to the world, the art art that's shown off by its artists, mm-hmm. um, unbeknownst to the population that the there is an artist behind Yuichi that's yeah. made him this disgusting, um, while beautiful, uh, just an amoral kind of... I don't know. I don't want to say disgusting, but I almost feel like that's an apt word to describe his behavior that mm-hmm. he has a proclivity towards. Well, I mean, what he what he has Yuichi do to these women is beyond heinous. It's um, like this emotional devastation beyond anything you could imagine. He basically like whores Yuichi out to uh, these two women that he has particular desire to destroy, and um, he sets them up on this impossible relationship where they'll never be truly loved, but are so deeply obsessed with him, and um, he engineers their terrorism in the tiny ways of, like, presenting an earring at certain times, or, like, you know, these very tiny moments of uh, interaction. And, getting uh, uh, getting uh, both women the same types of scarves. That's it. So that they, uh, when they meet uh, at a happenstance, they both notice that they've been given the same scarf, um, of course, by Yuichi. Right. Yes. And, I mean, all of it is, like, this really small stuff. But, like, this is actually like, what would rip a woman into multiple shreds. <laughs> it's like... Exactly. This woman who is, you know, your rival because she's married to the man that you're in love with gets the same scarf that you do. This woman that, you know, is somebody that's been seeking your husband uh, has an earring fall out of her pocket, yeah. you know, that is uh, the same one that she's seen you eat you with. Right. It's all of these very brutal mind games against these women that essentially make them go absolutely insane. Yeah. I mean, I would too. I mean, I felt insane reading this because I feel like I fell in love with Yuichi as well. Like, I really am... If I encountered someone that beautiful and I had to interact with them every day, it would, like, obliterate me too. We should get another drink, yeah? Yes, yes. I'll give you 400 yen from the last one and uh, that'll... That, like, no, you're giving me more money, right? Well, I gave I... you 1,000, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the drinks are 800 and then the last one was 800. So, yeah, you gave me 1,000. So you received... So you essentially paid... Um, you're paying me 1,000 yen right now. Right. And so then I give you this much and that's uh, 1,400. So that's almost two drinks if you buy me the next one. Okay. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yay. So I'm buying this next one? That's right. There's nothing in my area, so. Are they playing... Uh, what is that called? Big Mouth? Oh, yes, it is. That is what it is. Why are they playing Big Mouth on the screen? That feels inappropriate. <laughs> or like, yeah, it does not. It does not sit, suit the situation. Suit the environment. Are there any Uichis here tonight? I don't see many. No, there's not. Not that I see. And yet, there's something that like Mishima writes like towards the end of the book. I want. I pull. I put the quote in here. I want to find it because it's so, so fucked up and true. Um. I think it's this page. Can you hold this for a sec? Yes. Thank you. 
I found her. Oh. <laughs> okay, here's the quote. Uh, we stopped recording. I don't know where. Okay. What I said was, um, the quote I was looking for reads, uh, the ideal youthful beauty dreamed of by second century Romans was Asian in nature. And I think that that's just actually very, very true. I don't know if it's the facial features of the stereotypical Asian, but that makes it essentially a beautiful palette for anything to kind of be put onto, right? And I'm tired. You know, I don't give a fuck if someone thinks they have yellow fever because 99% of the people around me are Asian. True, true. I have no choice. Tokyo Craft, Nippon. Nippon, that's That's too bad. Yeah, because like there's no Yuichis around, but there's definitely like still like a, uh, you know, every now and then, just the just the sensation. So also you I would like to run to the bathroom. Oh yeah, it's over that way. Okay. Uh, I think so. I can probably take your beer. Oh, do you want? Maybe we should move it. Yeah, I can I'll take it. The yeah. Outside. Yeah. And then I can put my backpack down outside as well. Good call. Oh. I couldn't tell if that was real or not. Okay, let's go. Rio. Real, real. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're gonna go to the bathroom. Yes, and I'll put my backpack down on the ground. <laughs> これ、あの、ポッドキャスト作ってる今。そうなんです。そうです。はい、すいません。いや、ちょっと、いい。うん、そう。友達は取り使っているけど、うん、彼と一緒にポッドキャスト作っています。はい。面白いな。ちょっと
I wish people could have just seen how I maneuvered the, the cigarette in my hand without catching the the wig on fire or burning myself. It was really beautiful. sit there squat I should say <clears throat> this beer is better than the last one not saying much though the last one was nasty <clears throat> The little group over there was like, what is that? Oh, really? About this. And they're, they're like, what are you talking about on this podcast? I was like, and they're like, and they're like, you know Mishima? It's like, and then they Do I? Oh, tell, let me tell you. And then I was like, yeah, we're talking about Kinjiki. And she's like, oh, Sturu. I was like, really? Interesting. You know it? Um... Okay, so I think, you know, so far with what we've talked about, you know, I, I think it, it's pretty clear that like, Mishima has like such a, a grapple on the way that gay people exist. But what's uh, one of the scenes I think about endlessly is when they go to the foreigner party thing in the Aloha shirts and um, they take like these limos out of Tokyo and gather in this like big mansion by this uh, aged queen named Jackie. 
and uh, they just uh, bring a bunch of foreigners together with uh, Japanese guys and have like uh, this bizarre decadent like party together that is very very ageha. Yes, I mean, and the truth of the matter is, I have been to some of these like mm-hmm. parties before, um, and it is very much like they experience, like they like it's written in kinjiki in Forbidden Colors. Um, I we went to a beach resort. And it was like a literally, I think, 25 to 30 gays. And it was just like described. Everybody is cooking. They have dinner together. And then it's like, you know, some dancing. And then people go off into their own separate bedrooms because it has, you know, so many. We were, It's like two floors, essentially, that we rented out this, you know, very, very expansive beach mansion, essentially. Yeah. And... It's, again, one of those things that I thought was just written so, so much like it is just exactly existing today mm-hmm. that it's very, very surreal to read that, you know, because it's just so aptly describing something that I myself have actually participated in. Right. And I mean, the precise way he describes it, too, is just so true. It's like, um, at first, like, they're like kind of dancing like, kind of politely together right. and... Um, then it becomes like increasingly like deranged and he like describes it as this uh like mimicry of an exorcism it's like this attempt at trying to get out these uh, pent up desires and it um turns into this like ritualistic like bizarre thrashing of bodies together and now i like the first time i read that i can never look at like a gay club the same because i see the thrashing of the bodies and i see these people just uh endlessly trying to make their sensual world the physical world and it like i I keep saying this, but like, who else writes about this stuff this way? Seriously, no. I mean, I and the entire time I'm reading this book, again, this is after I've gone through the majority of your of your podcasts. It's again something that I think in, has informed your philosophy so strongly. I just find myself reading passages where I'm like, oh, I know that Zach is like read this and has incorporated it into his daily uh-huh. life, you know. And I think that foreigner. Party in particular is something that um, I think really hits probably hits to home with us in particular mm-hmm. being here because like there are passages that really describe foreigners as being this. Um, I, I like it's hard kind of, to describe. It is hard to describe. It's like but he this, gets it right. Yes, he gets it right. I think he says something like um, there are people speaking English in um, sound like foreigners speaking English at the bar and sounds that uh, a dog barking would make you know (laughs) it's like very animalistic um and i think from the perspective of the japanese person it's also extremely true yeah and it's something that you know i don't think that i don't think that i'm oppressed at all like I, i think that um there are definitely rules that are made for japanese society that just by simple fact of japan being 99 percent japanese homogenous Mm -hmm. that of course they didn't think about incorporating you know myself or foreigners into the picture it's not a matter of actually trying to be actively exclusionary yeah but yeah i mean what i love about it is that like larry kramer like spoke a lot about how um one of the greatest you know powers of homosexuality as it were is that we like come up out of anywhere there's no geology, there's like no like geography or physicality or pre-existing condition that um, can prevent a homosexual. Yes. They appear. 
yes. endlessly. Yes. And so, of course, any gay culture, especially in Japan, post-war when this is set, like where there's foreigners just lurking everywhere and like yes. the encroaching America is just, yes. you know beginning to like you know blossom in the country it makes sense that like so much of the gay scene is like touched by the endless presence of the hovering foreigner (laughs) you know yes i mean this is during american occupation so of course there's going to be probably more foreigners uh then than there are today right and you know i i think that i've had a lot of thoughts about my own place here in tokyo as you know a foreigner but what I always lean back on is the amount of times I've been told, you know, I'm never usually attracted to foreigners, but you. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, you know. Well, because Yuichi also like says he's like disgusted by foreigners. Right, exactly. He's like not into it. And I remember the first time I read this, I was like, no, <laughs> no. But then he ends up getting like kind of raped by one anyway. Yes, exactly. And um, I love that scene too because the the this foreigner who like speaks like perfect Japanese, like right. he's uh, like really specifically into it. He, you know, quite like we don't speak perfectly, but you know, yes. more than some other homosexuals surrounding us even at this very moment. And um, he's so overwhelmed by this like creature's beauty of Yuichi that he. Bites, bites him. him. Bites him, yes. Takes an actual... And I was thinking, like, when I was reading this scene, I was like, oh, surely this is, like, a love bite, you know? Like, a no, nibble. No, he chomps. To the point where he's bleeding. <laughs> yeah. Where he's bleeding out of this, you know, bite mark. And the foreigner realizes it's a mistake. I mean, that is Yuichi's beauty, is the ability to make men go crazy uh-huh. to the point that they actually do become animals sinking their teeth into the skin of this beautiful man. Have you ever felt like that before? I have many times. Uh, I have felt like I'm the object of that before. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Yeah, I, sure I mean, it's have. very, it's, yeah, no. I, I can't say that, mm, I can't say that I've never actually felt like that towards somebody else. Um, but, yeah, usually it's always been uh, mutual. Well, Nick, never... it's probably because you're the beloved most of the time. And I think you know that to be true, don't you? Um, uh, yes, <laughs> I do. I, I, I'm not going to play coy with this. Um, it is one of those things that I have tried to do my best to not become a Yuichi. Right. Um, to, you know, I have met my own Yuichis, and the one that I think was the most beautiful, most successful, most inspirational one was the one who remembered that I liked Lana Del Rey three years after the fact that I told him that I went to her concert Uh like live one time. You know, that sort of, you know, actually nice remembers you is engaging with his work, with his friends, etc. I feel like that's what Yuichi realizes at the end of the book. Right. When he wants to, you know, pay back the money to Shunsuke that he received and essentially take a more moral path down, you know, with his life. Um, but he's robbed from that opportunity, of course. Uh-huh. But if I'm applying it to myself in the real world, it's like, okay, yeah, I don't want to be somebody who just gets off with, you know, being the person that's the person being beloved, right? Right. And this is, you know, kind of the, the big climax of the novel is that Yuichi, through, like, the birth of his child with his wife, and um, he never, you know... He never forsakes his homosexuality, even up until like the very last pages of the book. You know, he even though he like takes he breaks it off with his uh, his uh, main suitor at the time. There are several in the book, but when he uh, breaks it off, you don't feel like he's like ending his his spell of homosexuality. You think it will continue, but like we were like saying earlier, he was reaching for the synthesis yes. of you know 
a pure life and something moral and good and something that you know ultimately benefits the world in some you know minute way. And he was going to take his first step in it by rejecting the money that Shinsuke paid to him to do the, these uh, acts of terrorism on women. And um, when he's robbed of it at the very end, it is such a vindictive victory because this beautiful creature will forever be trapped with the memory of this man who uh, Shinsuke, who kills himself in the last five pages of the book uh, and leaves 10 million yen, his entire estate, everything to him. And for the rest of his life, this beautiful creature will finally be belabored by his soul. And he's made his own love material in some way. I know. He's dug his own grave with his beauty. And it's something that, you know, he realizes in those last five, ten pages of the the book that he doesn't want to be entrapped by his mirror. But now, you know, his beauty has trapped him because he's there's no getting out of the will of the ten million dollars that Shunsuke has left him saddled with for the rest of his life. And his life will forever have that shade. And um, I think the, the main takeaway, not, not the main, but one of the primary things that was most important to me reading this book the first time, you know, two years ago, was that in the human universe, when the human universe where beauty exists, you can either be destroyed by or destroy beauty. You have two options. You can either let it completely overtake you and submit entirely to it, or you can murder it yourself and to see this one single victory against beauty which reigns over this novel with such a fascist will I felt really like vindicated in such a sick way no it's completely vindicating because at the end you to be honest frankly come to almost hate these characters for the way that they are just living so destructively so maniacally so diabolically towards everything that um, and everyone that surrounds them. That when you finally get this taste of vindictive anger from Shunsuke to Yuichi, uh, it's very cathartic because it it's something that you feel has been actually owed, right, to the to the reader of this book. And I I feel like when I imagine you know Mishima like in like 1949 and 1950 when he was going out to Ginza and like going to these bars of Miwa Akihiro and was like you know, still so skinny and, you know, trapped in the world of uh, words, as it were. I, um, I really, you know, resonate with his idea that there, you know, of, of him wanting to get vengeance and break it down because I feel like Mishima and like Shinsuke and like the women of this novel, I feel so raped by beauty every day of my life. And it's worse in this country, like I said, with like the, uh, you know, when we were, when we were talking about like the that quote with uh, the myth of beautiful Roman boys is, is realized in Asia, <laughs> I walk around every day of my life. I go on the trains, I go to the convenience store, and I see these precise mechanics of beauty that Mishima also locates in the man of the way they move their fingers or how they stand up or adjust their shirt collar or... There, there's just endless images of these beautiful men and it, it's such an onslaught against me who's so sensitive to it that um, that you know murder of it at the end yes well I mean the fact of the matter is Japanese men take longer to do their hair than Japanese women do <laughs> I mean if you're coming to a, uh, so a place that you know if you want to go to a place that just emphasizes beauty to its fullest come to East Asia South Korea or Japan because these boys 
are so well primmed and trimmed and tucked and, and, and everything that you could want in a man that to see the beauty of even the ruffians, right, who play sports, there's a uh, manicured beauty in their roughness. Right. And it's just not something that you see in uh, the West very often. No, it's so true. This is so true. I I think about this quite often because I'm constantly, you know, reconciling with what is happening to me when I'm, like, looking at the train and the, a man will just move his legs a little bit apart and I'm suddenly, like, imagining the most violent death upon myself, you know. And I really do think it's because in East Asia, masculinity still exists in this very bizarre and sort of, like, spatial way, almost, where even though there is, like, a lot of, like, priming and care, there is also, like, an incidental, unaware you know, aspect of this beauty that is just constantly unfolding in the unconquered masculinity of this country. Of course, well, when it's the standard that you need to be beautiful, that there then is born out an aloofness from that. Right. You know, where it's just what's expected of you, but you don't really understand the meaning of it. Yeah. You know, where in, in the States, it's not expected of you. So when you do get dressed up, you understand what you are doing. Exactly true. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure this is still recording. No, you're fine. It is. That would be horrible if it had stopped. Can you imagine? But no, it's still going. Do you know where the first time where it stopped? Where it It definitely stopped when I handed you the mic Mm. or when I... Okay, okay. Took it back? Yeah, so... Okay, okay. Oh, there's some dykes kissing. Oh, really? Oh, that's so... Oh my god. I see that. Oh, I haven't seen Dykes kissing. <laughs> Hooray. That's so funny. Oh, they're really going for it. That's so sweet. <laughs> I'm Yay. not going to turn around because otherwise it just becomes a uh, right exactly. A spectacle. Um, but, you know, thinking about this uh, conflict with my uh, sense of beauty and my, you know, deep perversion <laughs> as it probably is, I think we come to the, you know, topic of I'm so popular. Okay. So, you listened to it. Yes. In its completion? Yes, almost. I haven't listened to some of the more recent uh-huh. episodes. Yeah. Right. What is I'm So Popular about? I'm So Popular is about trying to understand um, oneself in the world of, of the beautiful. And I think... <laughs> you're, you're, like, grinning at me, but I'm serious. I think, like... One of the ultimate questions of I'm So Popular is the question of beauty and how that beauty can be such an influence, both in the positive but also in the extremely destructive and the very vindictive, destructive, disabilitating side of beauty that I think that you are facing every day in the art that you consume and the life that you live trying to make sense of that into these, you know, one hour, two hour episodes that you release weekly. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I want to cry. (laughs) I mean, what's interesting to me is that this didn't happen like intentionally at first, you know, because you went from the very start. Yes, the very, the actual start. With Miku and, yeah, I mean, when I... there was something inside of me at that time that I think um, I was enraged in a way. Um, I was really mad about gay people in particular, not at them, but just about what was happening to us. And it, it became, it was uh, from 
Charlie XCX, basically. <laughs> when the poppers. Yes, yes, the poppers. The the moral panic about the poppers so disturbed me that I felt that like, oh my god, like we are in the end times of gay people. Like it's all fucking over. And I felt this like need in some way just to speak and to say anything about anything and. Uh, Preserve what I believe to be like my own, not to navel gaze, but to navel gaze, you know, like my my perspective as it were. And um, I don't know how it started turning into like this, um, you know, battle with beauty as it has ended up as this. I think it has too, um, you know, hopefully organically, but I don't, I don't know what happened to, to make it get to that point. No, I mean, I think that um, the homosexual is tied to the aesthetic beauty of the world. I think that, you know, as Mishima writes in Forbidden Colors, and, you know, it, beauty is wholly important to the homosexual to the point where it's as important to the homosexual as it is to a woman. Right. You know, the biggest enemy is the uh, prospect of aging. And I think because that, you know, essentially... Uh, breaks down beauty. I think that's why your podcast has arrived to that conclusion is because at the heart of the homosexual is beauty. I think that's so true. And I mean, Polly has said this in the very start, which is that, you know, the last, uh, you know, preservers of male beauty are homosexuals. And to have that robbed is, is tragic. And, um, well, I'm really glad that the message conveys after uh, you've listened to everything, really. That's, like, the ultimate joy I felt in quite no, no. a while. I mean, like, I think, you know, listening to your episode with Jack and Mishima, you know, I, re I listened to that, I think, probably three times. Um, and, like, once a long time ago and then uh, twice recently. And I think you had mentioned to him that you felt like, uh, Perfume Naturalist was a completed art project. Not yeah. a completed art project, but a complete um, art project. And I felt like, you know, you were saying that's the only podcast that really effectively does that. I think I'm So Popular has also d achieved that. Well, I think the Mishima episode is kind of the about face for the podcast. And um, when I recorded with Jack that episode and the way we were talking about things that were so important to me like drag race <laughs> like drag race and then Mishima and the, and the film and um, I when I realized that I was like oh I can talk to people about this like meaningfully I, something instinctually that kicked off in me and I think I immediately was like I have to like restart I have to like figure out a way to like really make this like the focus of the show and I mean um, the episode I think that came right after that was my solo episode um, yes. throw away your books yeah and that was kind of the first time that I had been you know very cognizantly aware that what I was doing was you know potentially artistic in some way and I, I felt like this desperate need to like make it that you know what I mean yes but I mean I think that that was always there from the start I mean I know that you had your self critique um, and when you thought about you know what, what the meaning of the podcast is but I think that that has been there from the start so I don't think that it's something that, you know, you uh, needed to work towards beyond what you were already doing. You know, I think that you were getting there naturally. So, yeah, and I mean, I think that I think that's true as well. And especially when, you know, time and space, when you create like these uh, long form narratives and you, you know, 
begin it from the start and go chronologically, you see like these great like narratives arising somehow, and you you can kind of like detect it with I'm so popular that way, right? But like, um, and then in season two, I feel like I was especially in the first like 15, 20 episodes, I was really forcing it. I feel like I was trying it really hard. I, I feel like there was um, some sort of character that came over me and I started like uh, imagining like how I wanted to be perceived like really clearly and, and like trying to pursue that with every episode. Yeah, I mean, I can see if you say it like that, then I can see what you mean. But I think um, whatever it is that you eventually found throughout season two or you found like a, a very, very... Um, consistent voice um, I think that you know that has sustained itself and I feel it when we're talking right now I don't feel like any of this conversation is is forced or contrived so at the very least where you are right now is not a place that I think is coming from some sort of like need or desire to be perceived in one way or the other no I think I've defeated that as well for myself and like now I'm Sorry, there's a van passing by. I feel like I'm like much more. Um, you know, we were talking about the dogs barking earlier. <laughs> I know. Uh, but I feel like I, I have kind of like killed the 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 demon a little bit, mm. and um, it's difficult to present yourself every week in whatever state you are. Um, I was so fucking drunk and hung over like I was so drunk from the night before and I recorded the logo episode that I was like my body was exploding like and I had to like quickly take a break and stuff like 20 minutes in or like when I broke up with Kazu mm. and then I still had to keep the fucking right. show going yes, for like yes. two months and to just like keep doing it and it's impossible to act when you like make it you know part of your weekly life or whatever and I feel like you know what kind of stands now from season two is like a, an image of me that I feel is, is very true, at least to maybe how I feel. Mm. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I know you. I know that many, most people listening to this know you through this podcast, through your Twitter. I know you, like as a person, and so maybe that's why I feel as though um, the person that I'm talking to now is just just you and just who you are. Um, but I feel, and I'll have to listen to the more recent episodes, but I feel like I know um, your episodes from, like, at the very least a few months ago, and I feel like, right, you're completely correct that you've arrived at a, at a point that makes sense for the podcast. A narcissistic question. What are some of the aesthetic conventions of the show, in your opinion? Um, so one of the things that always catches me is the distortion effects that you use and I think like the I don't know if you would call it aesthetic but I think the warped sense of reality um, that comes across in a lot of the ways that you use sound effects and I think that it is something that is just extremely grand at a very very large scale so when you think of Evangelion or like Shin Megami Tensei, I think those things are so grand and impactful. And I think your aesthetic is that um, richness of a world or of an idea that's extremely well thought out and developed over a span of time. That's beautiful. <laughs> I'm going to cry. I swear. And like, 
with the interludes, you know, that that is the bulk of the work for the show. Recording is easy because I just have to go and talk. But like, I ha when I have to sit down with the audio, I use YouTube to MP3 to download off, and then you know, rip it apart in Audacity. I'm. I don't even know why I specifically started doing it, except it's like I knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. Because when I was in high school, and my, I think my first year of college, I had been like, maybe I'm gonna try to make music. Like, <laughs> I'm gonna try to do that. And I mean, I know that wasn't successful at all, but it did like teach me like uh, how to, you know, break audio apart a little bit. Right. And I, I find like the process like fun and like interesting. And, um, Thinking back and like when I was compiling everything for the the Patreon episode where I just put like as many of the interludes as I could put on the right. into one little episode there, it was like I kind of see what I'm doing now when I like put it all as like one piece and like the idea of like reality and like the the falseness of it that's being presented in just you know a conversation between two people mm -hmm. that you record and post. It's like there's a an element of artifice there that I think the the interludes kind of touch on maybe yeah no and I think it, I then feel kind of happy that that's where my mind initially went to in that question because I do think those interludes are something that um, are very inventive and I think are representative right exactly of like the reality kind of being torn apart and um, examined in those threads of of the ripped apart fabric. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that comes across. And now I'm thinking. <laughs> Should we get another drink? Yeah, I'm Can, fine. Can, I'm you're fine? fine? Um, let me... It's like yeah. almost midnight, I think. Oh, no. So, like, uh, take a... I also think Rio is going to maybe meet me here, but he was being a little cagey earlier about, like, uh, about whether or not we're going to, like, actually uh, convene tonight. A podcast. That was a good one. I'll go for that one again. The Tokyo Craft. Yeah. The Tokyo Craft. That's the name. Looks so nice. I'm paying for this, right? So you don't need to get in. Okay. Just yeah. Just. Thank you. Yeah. I really like the kind of a sullen feel tonight. There's like only like maybe 10 or 12 people dancing. I know. It's very sad. Did you hear that? Someone was like, what are you recording? Oh, right now? Yeah, that was like a podcast. <laughs> That's so funny. Is this the Men in Black song? I don't know. I, it's the Men in Black song. What? I don't know what that song is. I know Welcome to Miami, but that's just a Will Smith song. Oh, thank you. Oh, we left your backpack out there, but it's still there, so hooray. Oh, well. <laughs> really? Yeah, no, I mean, that stupid MacBook that I bought. 
but that's not in there right now. Oh, good. I was going to say, I was in, it was in there yesterday. I like that guy in the orange bucket hat over there. Oh, yeah, he's cute. Um, yeah, no, I, I'm such a lightweight. Like after Are you two feeling beers, it a little? I'm feeling it. Ooh, I love it. I mean, um, I haven't had anything since I had my gay Starbucks earlier today. Your gay Starbucks. Yeah, that's what is uh, that's what it is when you're a gay person. You go to Starbucks. It's not just Starbucks. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's, it's just gay, Starbucks. gay Starbucks. Yeah, you can get a drip coffee, and it's still just a little gay drip coffee from Starbucks. Oh yeah, because it's like a little. Oh, I'm getting coffee. Like, <laughs> I love coffee. I love caffeine. And I had I'm such I, an addict. I had a Sakura donut today. Oh, no. Oh. How many calories is that? Okay, well, today's Friday, and my, my rule is Friday and Saturday is my cheat day. There you go. There you go. Something I noticed when I was, I was re-listening to a few episodes of season two as well, and many times over, I said, I can never go to the gym. Oh, yeah, I, I know. can it's so never funny. go. I love, I love these proclamations that you make, like, you know, two years before the fact. I mean, you know, some of them are a bit sadder, like when you're talking about Kazu. But oh, then, yeah. like, whenever you're like, I would never work out. Like, I, I get my beauty from being a drag queen, and that's like, you know, I don't need, I don't need the gym. I'm like, okay, just you wait, just you wait. You'll meet me, and then you'll be like, all right, how do I uh, work out? It's no, it's exactly, <laughs> it's so disturbingly true, because um, especially when I moved to Tokyo, I was like, okay. There are more than some people here. Like, there's a lot of gay people yes, here. Yes. And um, I want constant abjection, and I want constant terror upon my soul in the face of men, and I want to do as much as possible, and I cannot unless I get it together physically a little bit. And see, the thing is, is I go on to, like, when I went back to the States, I would open up Grinder in, like, Los Angeles or, or whatever, and it was so difficult to find, like, what I hear is the LA gays are like the most obsessed with fitness and beauty but it's like grinder is just such a you know no offense to the people who don't have like a stunning six pack but it's like you know pretty devoid of that and you right. come to Japan and you open up the like dating apps and like all you see are six pack apps and like ripped guys and it's like extremely intimidating because you don't have that in the states right yeah i mean when I first came and I opened up Nine Monsters in my house and there were um, at least 300 people within a thousand meters of me. That's right. Yes, thousand, yes, yeah. yes. I was like, what the fuck? I know. I mean, what? I, you also live in like the area that has the most gay people like concentrated in the world. So like, just so people can understand that, yes, it is like a huge city, but like Zach has chosen to live in like the heart of the gay neighborhood so and you know what thank god yeah exactly <laughs> Hooray. I mean all of the stories that I get to hear are so exciting well I mean you know that moment when Yuichi goes to the park in Forbidden Colors I for, had forgotten that that scene was there and I read it I was like oh I can tell you that I had not read that point when I told you like I call it the park or whatever like again that was one of the things where it was like the words on the page were just so, like, emulating real life that I had to, like, actually pause. Every single time they talked about the park in that book, all I could imagine was Shinjuku Chuokoin, where I told you, <laughs> and where we call, like, you know, affectionately the park. The park. Right. Yeah. Ugh. And the park, <laughs> the park, I mean, I think about the, I'm so popular is also the park, because 
a lot of I think in my opinion a lot of the exercise of the show is like me trying to like get out like this like horny perverse demon that is just like <laughs> ruining my life like my like that guy had really strong perfume on did you notice yes I did I got a waft of that yeah it's kind of like masculine it's not a woman I'm wearing Mitsuko I'm not an expert unfortunately Mitsuko is the Mitsuko is the perfume that Jack recommended me that he thinks is uh, evocative of Mishima and I thought yes, I would yes, wear yes. it tonight so I literally yeah I listened to that uh, that this morning you can smell it what do you think Wow, that is a very good scent. Do you like it? Yes, I do. I do. A lot of people say it gives like, off like rotten library or old what? books no, 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 or like attic. Me. No way. I love that smell. No, I love it too. Yeah. And I like like the kind of like grandiose, like sad old feeling to it as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I can sense that, but I don't know. I just smell, it smells very nice to me. I think so too. Anyway, I'm so popular as about I'm a fucking perverse person in this world and um I have nothing to do with that in my my day-to-day life. Like it's just like so locked inside of me like when I'm like on my commute or like when I'm like at work or you know when I'm like watching Netflix or something, you know, with somebody or you know whatever and it's like that feeling is constantly like toiling inside of me and ripping me apart like an interior whirlwind and I have to like do something with that, you know? I completely understand. I think, like, you know, what I am curious to see is how you feel in five years when you're nearing 30 like I am. Like, because I listen to your podcast, I he- listen to your stories, and I relate to them so much. Like, I mean, I relate to Forbidden Colors so much, but at the same time, and I feel, like, very bittersweet in this, like... I don't feel like it's representative of my current life. And I don't think that that's necessarily something that, like, I chose for myself. I think that that's just a factor of, like, getting to my 30s. I can't wait for that. I pray to God that when I get older that, like, my endless looking and my eyes and my constant gaze, like, I hope it just fucking situates somewhere. Like, I can't... If I live my life in this constant state, I just... I'm going to have to be podcasting until I'm dead. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I really think that you'll probably arrive there. And that's what I, I think is so distressing for me when I think about Forbidden Colors, when I think about Shunsuke, when I think about Mishima himself. Like, I don't feel like society ever allowed him to get that opportunity to arrive there. You know, it was always going to be something that you know, because it was something he had to practice behind closed doors to the point where his own wife is vehemently denying that he's any sort of nothing but straight. You know, that I think is, um, unfortunately breeds this loneliness that can't be wiped off of the face of the homosexual. That's the quote that he says. He says there's like the particular like trait of the homosexual is like a loneliness that can never be truly wiped off. And there's there's the barking. (laughs) I was like lost in like dreamy thought. I was like, you know, imagining like what I'm gonna do with my my perilous sex drive and like my perversions, and then all of a sudden the barking. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the thing about Mishima, and I think. 
if I were to sit here as your friend and tell you how I feel about you and your podcast that I think is very similar is your devotion to beauty. And I think that you put beauty really above all else. And that's a way of living, you know? I think that there are compromises that you can make with yourself where beauty be takes a, less a lesser importance. But at the same time, do you want it to be a lesser importance? I don't think that you do. You could, of course, tell Mishima that it, you know, makes no sense to actually commit seppuku after you do a speech. But he wanted that. He wanted to have this beautiful uh, manifestation of his ideal life. And I think that he lived that for the sake of beauty. And I think that in, its, in and of itself is so beautiful. Why would you want to change that? Why would you want to change that? Do you hear that? Hear what? That laughing. <laughs> Who are you? Nick? Get, get away from me. The time has come.
So this is the resting place of humanity. Their desires and wills have been made real, all at once and all together. Maybe at last, they have found what they call happiness. Without the violence of the other, without the pain and rejection of knowing someone outside oneself, I believe the human heart has at last found its peace. Can it truly be? This sea before us is torn with rage and storm. Is this the peace they imagined? The peace they imagined was a world without pain, without separation. Completely joined together without distinction, and which they can so pain and misery. And from it, a new sea of knowledge, new life. No, we have failed. The stage from which they were born was destined to collapse. I feared it's something I have always known, but never had the courage to admit. And now I wonder if there's any meaning to trying once more. But we gave them everything. We gave them the capacity for pleasure. And the gift of knowledge. The creation of humanity was begotten with every possibility for sublimity. Had they been wiser, had they learned in time, they may have found divinity themselves. Had they been able to sow their world with the wonderful gifts we gave them... So then what is it you suggest? We unearth the seed of knowledge from this wicked sea to start anew and doom yet another race to suffer just as their ancestors did? We have already sentenced one to endless turmoil. To repeat it once more would be just as meaningless as you say their time on Earth was. I do not understand why you believe it is us at fault. It might be that we were conceited. You think us conceited? Yes, conceited, blind. 
We have watched our children on earth for many a millennium, their wars, their triumphs, and their tragedies. And yet, can even one of us say that we truly know the heart of a man? As I thought, the mystery of humankind remains as elusive to us as it did to them. There is not one being in this nebula, God or man, angel, demon, reality itself, not one force that can explicate what occurred within their poor souls. Then what is to be done? If humanity cannot be understood, and it cannot deliver itself to divinity, the meaningless of their existence spells the meaningless of our own being as well. It cannot be. If it were true, if we were as lost and incapable as man, then we must destroy the seed of knowledge. It is evil. If humanity spells our own meaninglessness, we must obliterate it completely. No. This is our fate. As mothers of our children, mankind, we must take responsibility for our failures as well as theirs. And so it is death that you are imagining as ample punishment for our filicide. If we cannot understand our failures, if we cannot understand our children, we deserve the same void they were punished for. But what without gods? Without men? Nothing else. But there could be a way. Yes, something we have not considered. Deliver me the seed of knowledge. I wish to hear exactly what man has learned from their time on earth. Perhaps there is something we have yet to hear from within their hearts. It is blasphemous. Submit, Lady Mere, unless you wish to experience the same oblivion we have bound humans to suffer in. I will not do it. Then you, Madame Conran, deliver me the seed. As you wish, my regent. they've accumulated and the experiences they've gathered every collective and singular memory yes it all resides within it is a wretched thing our beautiful gift to those lonely creatures look how they've molested it the seed radiates with some corrupted perverse aura stem but until we open it you are as foolish as a man if you wish to see what horrors lie inside such a 
let it be opened. So it shall be done. heard the sound of knowledge and and he has done the impossible surmounted the sea of meaninglessness take it out of here cannot be here <coughs> if one can summon the song the seed of knowledge surely he will not be alone look what you've done regent no this is where we will make it right at last he was summoned by the seed of knowledge it called him from this very ocean it will call others, and now we will learn from this creature what worth there might be to human life. Take him to our room of angel. This will be the final trial for all of their souls. Tell us what is the world of human 
I don't understand. Where, where am I? What happened to Nick? I, please, tell, tell me what's going on. I don't understand. Your world is finished. Vanish. Your group is worthless and lost. You have liberated your kind and the illusions of the life you returned. You to the state of your truest desires. Look down before you. This gray and embittered sea. This hopeless loop and soup. This is what your kind dreamed of. We have granted humanity what it has always dreamed of. No, no, no. This isn't happening to me. But you remain. So tell us, three mothers. What is the worth of human life? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Is that so? Who is it that you love? I, I, I don't, I don't. What is happiness? He escaped from the sea of every soul and still cannot articulate so much as one value derived from his kind. You don't have to hurt if you don't want to. Be with me. It is clear, you are in great pain. If he suffers so, why does he... Be with me. Be with me. Be with me. You don't have to fight anymore. You can rest. What is the value of human life? Why are you alive? Who are you? Be with me. Look how he struggles. This creature is perverse. It has wrecked its own heart with agony. He spent his life on earth chained to sodomy and emptiness, constantly gazing over men who would never be his, wishing for them to do horrible things to him. How much of his existence was looking upon men and futilely attempting at making so much as one meaningful thing from the vortex of his last? so-called life, replete with suffering and agony. What good could possibly be found in such a nightmare? Doomed to do nothing but see and dream all of those images, illusions, memories logged into nothing. You too can see it now. Despite the chaos in his soul, he was so proud of society he was trapped in. Any Dionysian possibilities of ecstasy was crushed by his doubt, his fear, his commitments, in his work, in his labor. I believe he wanted to be seen and to be known. I hear it now. He wanted the world to know his suffering being punished, or to make it somehow meaningful, but he could never trespass from the boundaries placed around him. The horrors of his perversions and the monotony of his habits never synthesized into anything of worth. The dialectics of those two extremes rest locked away in the effable realm of his soul. Meaningless. Worthless. No! You're wrong.
私が生きている理由です。地球上で私が生きていた頃、自分の人生はムーミだと思っていました。しかし、今思い返すとたくさん素敵な男性を見ることができたし、サクセスすることもできたので、私の存在は私の存在は価値のあるものでした。今から私は
Can you hear me? I can hear you. This is your world now. Make it in the shape you wish to see. But... I... I don't know how. Haven't you been doing it all along? I... don't... know what you mean. Somewhere, there are digits floating in space. You put them there, didn't you? You sat down with people and spoke to them. You recorded the numbers, and they made something. They made something. Are you afraid? I don't think so. The god of the new world. What will he do? Without the chains of his false mother. What will he make? Of the new world. Imakara. Ikiru. Last Day on Earth, an audio drama in two acts, directed, written, and produced by Zachary Huchichi. I'm So Popular, Season 2 Finale, Episode 50. Starring, in order of appearance, Jack as Reality, Pariah the Doll as the Regent King Gold, Jenny Schoons as the Lady Mede, Amina as the Madame Konran, Zachary Huchichi as Zachary Huchichi and Nick from Tokyo as himself. Featuring as the Chorus of the Heart, Stephen Zarens, Eternal Fella, Wikipedia, Christian, Nick Malone from Thought Topics, Your Girl Blaze, Red Pill Girlfriend, Natalie, Chris Lopez from Thought Topics, Fodbrain, Sasha Amato, Sam, formerly of Twink Revolution, Dangerous Phoenix, Josh from Evil Thespian, Harry Tapoya, Ava, Quinn, Amy Therese, Leo, Kyle, Mizoguchi, Brielle, Barrett Avner, Emiliano, Eddie from Car Crash, Blauergeist, Donna from The Pleasure Helmet, My Mother, with original music by Lucy Liu, Ryan from Car Crash, and Berto from Ghost Jail. Araya of the Soul performed on the piano by Pariah the Doll. Promotional painting by Anne Chovy. Promotional photo, Japanese consultation, and additional voices by Matsumura Ryo. And a very special thanks to the podcast auditors who have inspired a lot of this episode, um, particularly Jack from The Perfume Nationalist and Orton, formerly of The Perfume Nationalist, who have inspired so much of my approach to art as well as my sound and aesthetic sensibilities in the realm of podcasting, um, as well as Brendan from the Isolation Chamber, who showed me what you can do with a radio drama, and all of the wonderful people at Ghost Jail who um, do something of this scale every episode. I'd also like to thank my three leading ladies, Pariah, Jenny, and Amina, for putting so much work into this, and, of course, 
everyone who listens to this show in order from beginning to end every episode who's、um, hearing me now. Thank you so much. I'm so popular. We'll return for season three later in 2022. And until then, you can listen to new episodes of Sirens every week on my Patreon. So, ありがとうございます。じゃあ、またね。